Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. The new head of the army orders the service to mobilise to be ready to prevent or fight war in Europe. This is our 1937 moment. We're not at war, but we must act rapidly so that we aren't drawn into one through a failure to contain territorial expansion. I'll ask a former UK national security advisor just how great the risk of a war really is. NATO will certainly want more British troops standing by. The leaders' summit has been given a transformational plan to expand their high readiness force from 40,000 to 300,000 troops. A fundamental shift to our deterrence and defence with more forward deployed combat formations, with more high readiness forces and also with more pre-positioned equipment. This is the biggest overhaul of our collective defence since the end of the Cold War. The days of NATO formally treating Russia as a potential strategic partner have just been brought to an end. So is it time to admit we're in a second Cold War? I prefer not to think about a long-running Cold War, 70 years we had uh, the last time round, but we will be seeing change, evolution and transition during this period in Europe and just have to be ready for anything, I think. The Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Patrick Sanders, has put the Army on notice that it has a new main effort. From now, the Army will have a singular focus to mobilise, to meet today's threat and thereby prevent war in Europe. Operation Mobilise will mean speeding up the future soldier modernisation plan revealed a year ago. But he also indicated there could be some rethinking, possibly reversing planned cuts of thousands of soldiers. For British soldiers, the job is going to change. General Sanders says it needs ruthless prioritisation by the army. I'm going to drive activity across four focused lines of effort. First, and most importantly, boosting readiness. Deterring Russia means more of the army ready, more of the time, and ready for high-intensity war in Europe. So we'll pick up the pace of combined arms training and major on urban combat. We'll rebuild our stockpiles and review the deployability of our vehicle fleets. Second, we'll accelerate the modernization outlined in Future Soldier. Most importantly, this will start now and not at some ill-defined point in the future. Third, we'll rethink how we fight. We've been watching the war in Ukraine closely and we're already learning and adapting. Many of the lessons are not new, but they are now applied. So we'll double down on combined arms maneuver and we'll devise a new doctrine rooted in geography. And fourth, I am prepared to look again at the structure of our army. If we judge that revised structures will make the army better prepared to fight in Europe, then we'll follow Monty's advice and do something else. Now, of course, adapting structures has implications for the size of the army. Put simply, the threat has changed, and as the threat changes, we'll change with it. My job is to build the best army possible, ready to integrate with fellow services and strategic command, and ready to fight alongside our allies. Nonetheless, it would be perverse if the CGS was advocating reducing the size of the army as a land war rages in Europe and Putin's territorial ambitions extend into the rest of the decade and beyond Ukraine. 
the Chief of the General Staff, speaking at the Rusi Land Warfare Conference. Well, listening to that with me, Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, more of the army ready, more of the time for a high-intensity war, speeded up modernisation, a rethink of how we fight. What's that going to mean for the men and women of the army? I think it may, may mean quite a lot. The obvious thing it will mean is an attitude change. So the army is no longer going to be trying to just manage its decline or manage its operations at lower levels of everything. And it's another attitude change in terms of the the war in Europe is not an abstraction anymore. It's not just a yardstick that we use for training purposes. It's a real possibility. And, you know, during the Cold War, we we prepared to fight in Europe. But in reality, the the troops did everything but fight in Europe. They went on expeditionary operations. And the idea was if you could if you could fight a big war in Europe, you could do everything else. But now we're speaking or the CGS is speaking very clearly about the fact that we've got to be prepared to to fight and win. And he did say we didn't quote it here, but he did say we'll be outnumbered and we'll fight like hell. And I wrote that phrase down when he said it we will be outnumbered and we'll fight like hell. But we will be prepared to take on a real war in Europe as a way of trying as best we can to prevent it. I mean, I think the emphasis on combined arms manoeuvre, he said, we'll double down on that. And I'm sure he will. I mean, he's that sort of commander. And if I had to say what one branch of the forces that will feel the biggest change, I would guess, and I'm guessing, is logistics. That logistics, as we've we've seen in Ukraine, is as fundamental as anything else on the battlefield. If your logistics are right, then the troops can fight. If they're wrong, whatever they do, they can't fight. And I think that the logistics corps will probably feel the biggest and most immediate level of change to what they do. Well, let's bring in Lord Peter Ricketts, who was the UK's National Security Advisor from 2010 to 2012. Uh, Lord Ricketts, the Chief of the General Staff says Opmobilise will require ruthless prioritisation by the army. What can it afford to stop doing to be ready for war in Europe? I think what the General is saying is that we have seen a, a change in the way NATO is going to operate in the future, and therefore the British Armed Forces as well. From a period where we kept the eastern part of NATO relatively lightly manned uh, and kept forces uh, that could mobilise but only with quite a long notice, we're now moving to much more of a high alert uh, situation where there's going to be high readiness forces, there's going to be more uh, armed forces forward deployed. And so that is um, a complete reprioritization really, of what the army is about and also the wider armed forces. And I think most of all, it means a redirection of defence spending towards the army. I've felt for a long time the army has been the Cinderella service in terms of investment, and that's got to change now. If the priorities are changing, though, what will the army have to stop doing in order to provide what's needed? Well, the risk is it'll have to stop doing other essential things like training and um, the defence diplomacy missions that it does so effectively around the world. And maybe that's the short-term answer. The longer-term answer, I'm afraid, is for the army to get larger. It seems to me to be simply untenable to be looking at further cuts to the numbers in the army at a time when we're going to be asking the army to do more and hold more forces at high readiness. General Sanders talked about this being our 1937 moment. He's evoking uh, the lead-up to World War II. He's talking about being ready for high-intensity war fighting in Europe. Do you believe we really are facing that level of risk of a war with Russia? I'm always a bit wary about analogies with uh, the Second World War period because they're never exact. But I do see what the general's getting at. I think he's trying to say 
unless we make the effort now to be ready, the risk is higher later that we are going to have to fight. I think what we found from Putin is that he exploits what he thinks is weakness. So when he went into Georgia in 2008, the West was pretty forbearing. When he went into the Crimea in 2014, not a very strong reaction from the West. And the lesson he took from that is I can get away with more. So this time we've really got to send him a very, very strong message, including upping our defense spending, uh, that he can't get away with it. And that reduces the risk we will find ourselves fighting with Russia in the future. As you just said, uh, this has renewed questions about whether the UK's defence spending needs to increase further. Boris Johnson will only point to the extra £24 billion he has already given defence. Let's just hear what the Defence Secretary had to say at the Rusi Land Warfare Conference. I've always said that as a threat change, so must the funding. If governments have historically responded every time the NHS has a winter crisis, so must they when the threat to the very security that underpins our way of life increases. For too long, defence has lived on a diet of smoke and mirrors, hollowed-out formations and fancy efficiency savings, while in the last few years, the threat from states has started to increase. Well, Lord Ricketts, you know how government works. Downing Street will have signed off on that speech. Should we read into Ben Wallace's words that more money for defence is on its way? Well, I've since seen reactions from Number 10 which are rather exasperated, so I'm not sure whether they did focus on that speech. Normally, yes, they would have seen that in advance. And to be fair to the government, they have spent a lot more on defence in the last few years, but an awful lot of it has gone into the two aircraft carriers, the aircraft to support them and all the support an aircraft carrier needs. And now we need to redirect that spending. And in my view, it probably does need to go up. Um, I think Ben Wallace is right that when the threat increases, we need to look again, both at the prioritisation within the defence budget, but overall size as well. That was Lord Rickett speaking to me. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, let's pick up on what General Sanders said about the fact it would be perverse for a chief of the general staff to advocate reducing the size of the army as a war rages in Europe. The last defence review envisaged the army shrinking down to 73,000 troops. How much could an army that size actually do and how much difference would it make if that cut was abandoned? Yes, it's a, it's a strange number. Nobody, including the previous CGS, uh, Mark Carlton-Smith, admitted that they couldn't, they couldn't find a proper rationale for it other than an economic one. They could not justify what an army of 72,500 up to 73,000 would do that an army of 82,000 was not supposed to do. And we've, of, we've often said on this programme that whatever the right number is for the army, it's not 82,000, it's not 73,000. There, there, there is no strategic rationale behind this. I mean, I think it comes down to the view that if all you want to do is to provide one combat division working always with allies, then you could do it with fewer than 70,000 troops. But if you want the army to do more than that, to provide a framework nation, to be able to do other things as well, then you need a lot more than 73,000 troops. And, and realistically, well, I think we're looking at an army back over 100,000, 110,000. You know, the core army, in most people's view, has strategically either got to be below 70,000 if we're going to do the minimum, or somewhere above 70,000 if we're going to do the sort of things the government now thinks it should do. And on that phrase, ruthless prioritisation, could that mean shifting money from the RAF and Navy to invest in the army? And, and if so, how much could that dent those services? Well, the Navy and the Air Force have got what they wanted. They recapitalised earlier than the army. 
in a way, you can't really reduce what you spend on the RAF and the Navy because they've got to keep going the, the systems that they've got now, the, the F-35 and the Typhoon for the RAF and its transport aircraft, which in, at the moment, indeed, are doing a very important job, RAF transport, in moving munitions around Europe, not just from Britain to Poland, but everybody else to Poland. They're, they're, they're actually airlifting thousands of tonnages from one ally to another. So new spending, I think, has got to be prioritised towards the army. As Peter Ricketts said, the army's been the Cinderella and the, the army's behind the curve in, in terms of working out what it's trying to achieve by 2030. And I think what Patrick Sanders was saying is that, look, there's no time to mess about with this. We can't pretend, as we always have, that we've got five to ten years to get this right. We haven't. We've probably got two to three years to get this right. And so there, need to be, there needs to be more spending and it's got to go predominantly to the army. I think that's the the bottom line. Michael, stay with us. Operation Mobilise isn't just getting the army more ready for UK operations, but also for NATO, which has announced its own big changes at a leaders' summit in Madrid. Yet more Alliance troops are heading to Eastern Europe, and we'll hear from Lithuania shortly. But NATO also wants to increase its high readiness forces to more than 300,000 personnel by next year. A return to Cold War posture with no diplomatic niceties from the Secretary General about the reasoning. I expect it will make clear that allies consider Russia as the most significant and direct threat to our security. The new plan is a seven-fold increase on the current reaction force. It would amount to almost 20% of troops across the alliance being held at readiness, along with vehicles, ships and planes. But is such a huge and rapid increase in military readiness realistic? Rose Gottemuller is a former Deputy Secretary General of NATO. Yes, I believe it is realistic. NATO has reacted quickly and efficiently to uh, the recent, well, waves of Russian threat, really, following the invasion of Crimea and the destabilization of the Donbass in 2014. NATO moved quickly to intensify its ability to reinforce and also uh, moved to establish battle groups in the Baltic states and Poland. At the time, I was amazed that they were able to get those battle groups certified within a year. So I am quite confident that improving and developing a rapid capability to reinforce up to 300,000 troops is quite possible in a short period of time. And what exactly will it require of NATO members to, to deliver this force in this time? They are really going to have to focus on training and readiness. Uh, I think one of the problems in the past has been that countries such as Germany have not really put uh, the resources into training and ensuring that their troops are ready as was uh, required. And so now I think Germany in particular has, has signaled a 180 degree switch, really focusing on getting its troops ready for the fight. So uh, these are changes that will be required of each NATO member state. Some are better than others. I just raised Germany as an example, but others too will need to focus on raising readiness and better training for their troops. And where should these 300,000 troops be? Well, they will be uh, available to re reinforce where they are needed. So if the Russians, for example, are pressing against the Baltic states, are threatening the Baltic states, they will be deployed uh, rapidly there. If it is in the southeast of Europe, in Romania and Bulgaria, along the Black Sea, that the threat is emerging, then they would be deployed there. So it really just depends on where the threat emerges. 
I described the new NATO strategic concept as a Cold War posture. Russia's going to accuse NATO of provocation. We've now been in a spiral of military buildup on both sides for eight years. Can we see this as anything but actually being in a second Cold War? Oh, well, it's, it's a different time from the Cold War because it's a different regime in Russia. And during the Cold War years, we had the Soviet Union built around this uh, Marxist-Leninist ideology. The regime that we see in the Kremlin today uh, built up around Putin is, is really quite uh, a personalistic one uh, and focused, I think, in so many ways, not on any particular ideology, but on maximizing wealth, maximizing gain. It's a much different situation there now. Frankly, I don't know with that kind of ideology focused around one man, how long can it last? So I prefer not to think about a long running Cold War, 70 years we had, but we will be seeing change, evolution and transition uh, during this period in Europe and just have to be ready for anything, I think. There will be a lot of ordinary people looking at the cost of a huge military buildup and the cost of living crisis and thinking, do we really need this? Ukraine is Ukraine. Where's the evidence Russia is really prepared to attack NATO? Of course, that will be a balancing act for leaders across NATO. But I do think that this is unprecedented in uh, this century to have one country in Europe attacking another country without reason, except for this this dream of Vladimir Putin to reestablish a Slavic heartland. So I think that this is an existential threat to Europe and to its values and principles. And I think the public's also realize that. Former Deputy Secretary General of NATO, Rose Gottemuller, Michael Clark, I mentioned that 300,000 troops at readiness is of the order of 20% of service personnel right across the alliance. It also requires ships, planes, tanks to be at readiness. Can that be maintained on an open-ended basis? Uh, well, it would depend on the, obviously, the political atmosphere and the way the threat evolves. I mean, I think the first question is, can it be established and how long will it take? Because it's certainly not going to be up and running by next year. I think as we see these plans being fleshed out in specific terms, every country will be submitting its plan to increase in the following ways a series of steps. And I think we'll see some dates begin to emerge by the end of 2023, by the end of 2024. I wouldn't expect this this readiness level to be achieved within the next couple of years, maybe even longer than that. But the readiness levels will start to go up. Now, whether they remain there or whether they start to drift down again or whether we never quite make those targets rather depends, I think, on what happens in Ukraine. And how much more of the UK's military capability is going to have to be made available to NATO? Uh, well, not so much. We've got 2,000 troops in Estonia at the moment, and the, the MOD is going to commit another 1,000, but they won't be in Estonia. They'll be ready to go at short notice. But we are going to put a brigade headquarters in Estonia, and that's a big move, a, a few hundred troops mm. in that. And then we're going to be sending, according to the Defence Secretary, some more Typhoon aircraft to Cyprus to conduct more air patrols, particularly over the, the Black Sea. And then there's the carrier battle group. We've already committed that to NATO, and we're just recommitting it, really, whether it would spend mm. its time nearer the Baltics or nearer the Mediterranean, I think would be depend on the circumstances. So we're, we're only tweaking what we've already said we're going to do. But the point is, we've now got to do it. It's no good just sticking it in, into a communique and patting ourselves on the back. We've now got to do these things in the coming months in our case. 
Now, the 40,000 NATO troops currently in Eastern Europe have been described as little more than a tripwire that might deter but could not fight off a Russian invasion. Now, that enhanced forward presence will be increased to brigade size units. Another 1,000 British troops will be committed to Estonia. It is those Baltic states that are seen as most at risk from Russia, but how at risk do they feel? Dr. Margarita Sheshelgita has worked at the Baltic Defence College in Estonia and Military Academy of Lithuania. She's now director of the Institute of International Relations and Political Science at Vilnius University. I think the situation has changed during the first days of war. The situation really was tense. I know that some people were really leaving the country to other countries, like, for instance, to Sweden. There were some anxieties that we might be the next ones. There was some anxiety if NATO is capable to protect us because no one has uh, believed that Russia could wage a war of this scale in Europe. At the beginning, there was a lot of anxiety, but I think that people calmed down a bit at the moment. And why have they calmed down? Uh, First of all, I think that Russia has stuck in Ukraine and I think that uh, there is a a lot of skepticism whether Russian armed forces are so almighty. And last but not least, there were a lot of reassurances from NATO which were also calming. And do you think more NATO troops will change their role from tripwire to credible forces that could fight back against Russia if needed? It might change uh, because uh, when we reconsidering our defense from deterrence by punishment to deterrence by denial, we are reconsidering the whole uh, defense concept that we have to defend ourselves on the borders, not in the country. And we can't wait until additional troops arrive because that might be just too late. Additional presence of NATO troops, it's very important for us. And also not only the troops, but also equipment, enablers. It's not only land, but also maritime and air defense. And air defense is one of the vulnerabilities that we have uh, in the Baltic countries, simply because we don't have uh, sufficient air defense. Mm. So that um, the strengthening of all the dimensions, it's very important. It's paramount for us. And across Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, there are an estimated one million ethnic Russians. Does this risk stoking divisions? Some will still have some loyalty to Moscow, won't they? It is difficult to say. Lithuania is a bit exceptional case because the percentage of Russian minority in Lithuania is very low. We have around 5% of Russians in, in, in Lithuania. The situation in Latvia and Estonia is a bit different. It's at least uh, five times more Russian, Russian speakers there. Many of them have been quite well integrated into the societies. If I remember the years, uh, first years of our independence, these links between Russian speakers and and Russia proper were probably more tight and there was more belief that Russia is important and it, its influence has to stay in these countries. Now situation has changed. Russia changed it itself. But still uh, there are certain links that Russia might um, take advantage of. Dr. Margarita Sheshelgita from Vilnius University in Lithuania. Well, we've talked a lot today about big decisions taken by NATO, but is that actually where the most important defence decisions for Europe are taken? 
A newly published study argues it's not actually NATO or the EU that drives that defence cooperation in Europe. Instead, it's a web of smaller collaborations and informal relationships from the UK's defence partnership with France to its ties with Estonia forged in Afghanistan. The decade-long research project was carried out by Dr. Bent Nemet, formerly an official in Hungary's Ministry of Defence, now a lecturer in defence studies at King's College London. Ministries of Defence throughout Europe do not always think about in organisations in NATO or EU. Oftentimes, bilateral or smaller groups are just much more efficient. And it doesn't mean that EU or NATO are not important. They are absolutely important and they provide the trust that facilitates this uh, wider web of, of cooperation. But the driving force is that these countries are creating these smaller corporations and thereafter they're uploading these to the NATO and EU levels. And what examples are there of these smaller relationships driving bigger decisions? For instance, in 1999, uh, UK and France decided that uh, the EU needs to have a defence policy. And it was based on a UK-French uh, bilateral agreement in 1998, and thereafter, these two countries convinced everyone else on, in Europe that it is a good idea. And this is how we got uh, the European Security and Defence Policy. Or, in terms of uh, the Libya war in 2011, UK and France started this war and they decided to go in the framework of NATO and convince their allies that their policy is the right one. And basically, a French-British war became a NATO war. You stress the importance of personal relationships between leaders and when they get on, things really happen. If they don't get on, um, do other relationships, say, between diplomats compensate? They don't necessarily compensate, but what happens if these corporations are institutionalized, they are living longer than personal relationships. When personal relationships are right or the leaders match, everything just goes much, much faster. We know that at the moment, the relationship between uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson and uh, French President Emmanuel Macron actually is very bad. And it had a spillover effect also on uh, British-French defence cooperation. And we see that lots of cooperation stalled or slowed down significantly. And you mentioned earlier that these bilateral relationships are very important, but still it doesn't dent NATO's effect. What effect does it have on NATO and its operations? So, for instance, the UK leads the Joint Expeditionary Force. Uh, basically, it's a framework that uh, helps Nordic countries, Norway, Finland, Sweden, Denmark, and many others, to cooperate more effectively. And this is not a NATO structure. But because there is lots of cooperation in this framework, trainings, exercises, policy discussions, these kind of more informal uh, discussions and cooperation shape how NATO works, because lots of standpoints have been established in these smaller frameworks, and thereafter these countries go together to NATO to shape policies there. And uh, the UK is, is, is leading this effort, and it's, it can be very influential, and especially now that the Baltics and Eastern European countries becoming more and more relevant, it seems that the UK's influence mm. will increase in NATO. And, and given the current security crisis in Europe at the moment, which bilateral relations do you think are the most significant and the most important at the moment? Usually in Europe, the UK-French uh, cooperation was the most relevant one. It always decided 
what is happening in Europe. But now it, it is not working. So what we see now that the UK and also France starts to turn to Germany. But I would say that it is not necessarily European, but still the UK-US special relationship is the most powerful one that really impacts uh, European security dynamics. Dr. Bent Namet from King's College London. Well, let's get a final thought from Michael Clark. Michael, we've had announcements from UK defence and NATO couched in terms of historic moments compared to the threat of a world war. The alliance getting bigger with Finland and Sweden joining a move from tens of thousands of troops ready to fight to hundreds of thousands. Is the reality of what's happened this week as historic as the words suggest? Is the threat as real? I think this week we've seen a collision of two big ideas. I mean, one of them, uh, and I'll, I'll use the words of Paul Johnson here from the Institute of Fiscal Studies, who's very, very good on these things. These are not my words, but these are his, when he says that for 60 years, the decline in defence expenditure has funded the increase in spending on the welfare state without the need to raise taxes. But here we are now needing to spend more money on defence, and we're already raising taxes to fund the welfare state. That's one problem, and that collides with what the CGS was saying this week, that we always thought of ourselves as being in the post-war era, the post-Cold War era, the post-9-11 era, and in a way the military chiefs were the caretakers, managing decline in many cases, but supposing, and I know this bothers the chiefs, or I know they're aware of it, supposing they are the first generation of chiefs who history will judge to be the pre-war chiefs, how differently might we look at these fundamental priorities if we designated in 50 years time, if we thought that the early 2020s were not the post 9-11 or the post Cold War years, maybe they were the pre-war years. And that's why the CGS was, was using this idea of the 1937 moment, I think, that he was trying to get us to turn our imagination over and think differently about the priority choices we now face. Professor Michael Clark, thank you for your time and thank you to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS SITREP next Thursday. Until then, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And you can catch up with past programmes on the website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. There you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 